children of all ages, welcome to this Fuds on Film podcast. I am Scott Morris and I'm joined today by Drew Davidale. Hello. And Craigie Smith. It's a guide, John. The string is just a guide. Once again, answers on a postcard, you never actually do it. Maybe we should start giving out the address. Uh, <laughs> yep. Um, so we have a bunch of films to talk about with no particular fixed agenda. Just a bunch of stuff that we've seen recently and we thought we'd talk to you about. It's just a random grab bag. Craig, perhaps you'd like to kick off this with a look at the light between oceans. Oh, I, I would. I would like to do that. Um, M.L. Stedman is not an author with whom I am familiar and in synopsis at least this adaptation of The Light Between Oceans is not the kind of work whose themes would necessarily pique my interest Having said that, we have here a movie whose top billings belong to Alicia Vikander and Michael Fassbender either of whom I would happily watch mopping a floor for two hours and director-screenwriter Derek Cianfrance who last time we spoke about him I don't think we decided how to pronounce his surname <laughs> um, who showed some real promise with 2010's Blue Valentine even if the place beyond the pines went a little wide of the mark a couple of years later uh, the movie opens in 1918 with Tom Sherborne Fassbender returning to Australia from France where he has just served for four years on the western front uh, during the Great War Understandably in search of solitude, Tom is installed on a temporary relief contract as the keeper of Janus Rock Lighthouse, situated many miles off the coast of Western Oz, between the Southern and Indian Oceans, and visited only four times a year from the mainland on supply runs. Before embarking on his first term, Tom is introduced to local shopkeeper's daughter Isabel Graysmark, Vikander, with whom he strikes up correspondence, which soon becomes romance followed by marriage. The couple live a happy and cluttered life alone on the island. However, Tom's gradual coming to terms with the psychological scars of his army service is soon offset by not one but two miscarriages for Isabel. Life becomes understandably less idyllic for the couple than they have envisaged. That is, until following a storm when a rowboat washes ashore containing a distraught infant and the body of a young man. Tom is torn between his duty to log the events truthfully and his wife's desperate wish to foster the child, a girl, and pass her off as their own. Suffice to say that what begins as a well-intentioned, seemingly altruistic act of minor deception, as far as they're concerned, soon spirals out of control. The deceased occupant of the boat revealed to be the German son-in-law of wealthy mainland business owner Septimus Potts, Brian Brown, and the baby that of his daughter Hannah, Rachel Weiss, who is emotionally ravaged by what she believes to be the loss of her young family at sea. It is hard not to display some initial cynicism about the light between oceans when so many well-intentioned period literary adaptations surface in the latter part of any given year with one eye firmly on golden statuettes. And while that may well have been at the back of someone's mind somewhere in this instance, what is refreshing about this movie is its steadfast refusal to wear emotional histrionics on its sleeves despite so many weighty themes vying for attention at the heart of it. Vikander and Fassbender are both excellent, though it is the latter who seems to be doing most of the heavy lifting. However, neither lead indulges in overwrought performance at any point, trusting instead in each other's skill and the craft to convey emotions simply, often silently. This especially welcomed in the one early scene where we understand Tom is dealing with his inner war demons, Fassbender and his director happy to eschew flashback and or breakdowns and instead rely on stoic tears atop the lighthouse as what may or may not be a subtle soundscape of horror is mixed discreetly atop the violently breaking ocean below. It's very strong stuff, and for the first hour or so the movie is at its best as it trades skillfully, primarily, in the emotions of its two leads. 
Vikander may not steal the show here, as she did in Ex Machina, but in a role that could easily have been written as simple housewife who loses baby, she is every bit the leading woman, and though the movie is ostensibly about Tom, at no point does Isabel look like becoming a supporting character. Where some ground is definitely lost is in a very busy third act. The script, if not the performers, groaning a little under the weight of knots it almost irrevocably ties itself in, trying to achieve some meaningful resolution to all of this. And of that resolution? Hmm. Well, when it comes, it does so in a way that feels almost so contrived as the arrival of the robot, in order to suit a narrative conclusion that one imagines was conceived well in advance of the preceding story. Quite happy to let Chai in France, Cy in France... Him play his, <laughs> play his joker on this occasion, however, because I firmly believe that throughout the course of the movie, everyone involved is treating me, the viewer, with that most elusive of traits respect. Even Michael Desplat's melancholic but never overwrought score seems to be engendering this manifesto. And Adam Arkapaw's cinematography is similarly big and lush in a very understated way delivering the most from the stunning, occasionally bleak and always isolated vista of Janice without ever threatening to make this an overtly visual movie, if that makes sense. I like The Light Between Oceans. I like it a lot, even if a good many critics seem to have met it with a lukewarm welcome, and I think perhaps it's because it takes a period of our simpleton like myself, who appreciates strong performances, by the hand, but without ever coming across as patronising. That might not be meaty enough for the more learned of critics, but for little old me, it is greatly appreciated, and I will certainly return to Janice again. Fair dues. We've not seen it, as with <laughs> most of these, so I guess we'll crash straight on. <laughs> you don't need other opinions, you've got mine. Yeah. <laughs> I've given you the tools. The only opinion that counts. <laughs> yes, in my own head. So I guess we just crash on to Captain Fantastic then. it <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a similar period piece. <laughs> Um, you'd think so, but you'd be wrong. Oh, uh, a mud-covered figure, a boy, or maybe a young man, stalks a deer through a dense forest. Pouncing, he takes the deer's life, and as he breathes heavily at the conclusion of the successful hunt, his father appears and declares him a boy no longer, but now a man, and proffers him one of the deer's organs to consume to mark the ritual. Other members of his family similarly covered in mud, appear, and the troop return home, where they wash and to don an assortment of clothes, amongst which are headdresses created from animal pelts. So far, so primitive. But when is this? Are they 19th century pioneers? Perhaps stranded like the Swiss family Robinson? The cast of a new deliverance? <laughs> a lot seems possible. But then the family sit around the fire after dinner, open up books by George Eliot and Dostoevsky and discuss Chomsky, Marxism, Dirac and theoretical physics. <laughs> Rather nicely subverting both society's usual view and cinema's usual treatment of families who choose to live a secluded life in the woods. There, Largely, <laughs> Sorry, there goes my theory that this was going to be set in the Glaswegian suburbs. <laughs> Largely cut off from civilization. These aren't hillbillies, weirdos, inbred axe murderers, or any of the other undesirables that most fiction has taught us inhabit the forests. Directing from his own script, Matt Rossi's Captain Fantastic sees Viggo Mortensen as Ben, the father of a large family who eschewed an increasingly corrupt, capitalist and materialistic American society for a simpler life with higher ideals. The family are fit and strong, regular exercise regimens and activities like mountain climbing having honed them, intelligent, 
passionate and spectacularly well-educated, especially when compared to their regularly schooled relatives. They live mostly off of the land, selling homemade wooden trinkets in a local shop to buy the few things the forests of the Pacific Northwest can't provide them. Unfortunately for Ben, there is trouble in paradise. His wife has been in hospital for some time, suffering from a particularly bad depressive phase of bipolar disorder, and his children yearn for experiences and knowledges that their secluded existence cannot provide them. When news comes that his wife has died, Ben makes the difficult decision to take the family on a road trip to New Mexico for the funeral of their mother, exposing them to all of the temptations, vulgarities and corruptions of the world from which he has tried to shield them. It is a journey of discovery for them all, and Ben will find his will tested and doubt many of his decisions, and it is this that is the crux of the story. Is Ben a great father, or a terrible one? Both are strong possibilities. He has given his children high quality education, amazing survival skills and physical training, and both taught them and enabled them to think for themselves. On the other hand, he does get them involved in planned shoplifting. And <laughs> as you do. And does the daughter go in the pole? <laughs> <laughs> no, she goes in the wicker man. <laughs> so, um Plan shoplifting and I've lost my place now. It's plan shoplifting <laughs> and they celebrate their own version of Christmas, Noam Chomsky Day. Um, <laughs> celebrates the, uh, Noam Chomsky Same Day thing. By giving them hunting bows and knives. Big f or shiny ones that look like they could skin a crocodile. <laughs> he also rails against organised religion despite the fact that some of the family's beliefs and activities um, have a whiff of religious structure about them, and in a scene sure to irk many actual Buddhists, Ben trots out that hoary old cliché about Buddhism being more of a philosophy than a religion. But it's these contradictions and quandaries that make this film so compelling. Ben and his family are complicated, because people are complicated, and Captain Fantastic largely avoids easy answers. All in all, it's an interesting, charming and funny film with a particularly engaging and nuanced central turn from Viggo Mortensen. While the girls of the family are somewhat relegated, notions of manhood are one of the film's central themes, all of the children acquit themselves in their roles well, but most notably George Mackay's Deer Hunter Bo. There's also strong support from Frank Langell and Anne Dowd as Ben's in-laws. And again, usual character types are subverted as Langella's Jack is considerably less one note than the usual rich, grief-stricken father who blames a man for taking his daughter away. While the ending is the one area that I'm ambivalent about, I really cannot decide if it's a cop-out or a necessity. Captain Fantastic is just that. Fantastic. Uplifting. Thought-provoking. Full of metaphor and social commentary unwilling to go for easy, happy endings, lovely to look at, and definitely worth watching. Nice. Man, am I going to spoil the mood in a minute? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think, Scott, did you see Captain Fantastic? Because I didn't. No, it looked silly from the trailers, and it sounds silly from your description, so I'm probably <laughs> going to dodge this one still. Scott, <laughs> <laughs> it's, got, it's, got, it's got Wicker Man. Well, if it's got Wicker Man, the daughter being on the pole, I suppose, then that's yeah. going to be fine. I'll, I'll watch it in that instance and that alone. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, Fire on the Bastille Day, then. 
Aye, Bastille Day, a.k.a. The Take. Um, lots of people are of the opinion that Idris Elba ought to be the next Bond. Those people, one presumes, have not seen Bastille Day, <laughs> a.k.a. The Take, as it was hastily renamed, having been pulled from cinemas following the French terror attacks earlier this year. In Bastille Day, a.k.a. The Flake... Idris Elba plays CIA agent Sean Breyer, stationed in Paris, who is, in a refreshingly genre-bending twist, a maverick, a liability, on the edge. We know this because early in the movie, one of his superiors addresses him something along the lines of Sean, goddammit, you're a maverick, a liability, you're on the edge. (laughs) Now, when terrorists start blowing shit up and killing people, Sean isn't going to listen to the mayor tell him that even if the guy saying it isn't actually the mayor. Hell, Sean will make the guy mayor just so that he can tell him to go shove his rule book up his ass and then tell City Hall to go up there looking for it. Wait, the French don't have a thing called City Hall? Sean will build one with his own bare, rough, manly hands just so that he can tell everyone in it to go looking up the ass of the man who isn't actually a mayor but who Sean made mayor because he made the mayor shove the rule book up there. Do you get the picture about Sean? Good, because I'm not sure the movie makes it all that clear that Sean is a goddamn maverick. (laughs) Anyway, back to the terrors blowing shit up, because that is what Bastille Day, a.k.a. The Cake, is all about. Warning, warning, a running joke has been detected. (laughs) Warning. (laughs) I'm only only serving this in the manner that it, (laughs) it is deserved. The problem is that the terrorists who manufactured the bomb that just killed four people in central Paris only meant to cause devastation to the empty headquarters of the right-wing French National Party as a pretext to causing civil unrest that will cause a diversion from the bank job they are pulling because they aren't terrorists. They're an elite armed response unit of the French National Guard or something. Are are you following this? The reason things have gone a bit peat-tong is that the Patsy planting the bomb at the FNP party offices flaked out, and in doing so, had her bomb-bearing satchel snatched by suave, handsome pickpocket Michael Mason, a.k.a. Rob Stark off Game of Thrones, a.k.a. actor Richard Madden, who looks and behaves like no pickpocket ever in the history of thievery. The oblivious Michael drops the bag he presumes to be worthless just in time to avoid becoming toast himself, but somewhat inconveniently, it racks up the aforementioned handful of civilian casualties. He swiftly becomes a man on the run from law enforcement agencies, convinced he is a lone bomber. But fortunately, Johnny Gunhands, or whatever it was Idris Elba's character is called, smells a rat. (laughs) and. I think it was Johnny Bazookatone, wasn't it? (laughs) Sorry, I've copyrighted that name, by the way. Um... Yes, smells a rat and tells his superiors they ought to shove their lone bomber theory up the ass of the man who isn't a mayor where it can keep that rulebook company. He's going to investigate this shit his own way, son. And by investigate, I do mean exert an awful lot of lethal force that goes bizarrely unnoticed in a major metropolitan area like Paris. Now, Bastille Day, a.k.a. the past the bake, or whatever, would dearly love for you to have suffered from cinematic amnesia for the last 40 years. So steeped is it in daft, intellectually retarded tropes and derivative conventions. But fortunately, and or unfortunately, depending on your viewpoint, very few of us who will watch it actually have that joker to play. And so I find myself struggling to find much here to recommend. 
Everything about this movie feels tired and unoriginal, from its main characters and their utterly unconvincing, reluctant buddies' pseudo-comical relationship, to its lazy use of unbranded social media as an analogue for plot-driving magic. When Bastille Day does try to genuinely excite, it falls flat on its face. Crazy gunfu motorcade fight routines are all very well when you're eco US and the movie is The Raid 2, but when you have Idris Elba staccato stage punching generic stuntmen in the back of a Ford Transit van as it transverses cobble side streets, the effect is somewhat, hmm, lessened. It all comes across as somewhere between a straight to VOD pot boiler and an enthusiastic YouTube homage, and it certainly lacks anything approaching the professional trappings you'd expect from a director who in the shape of James Watkins, let us not forget, once gave us the critically revered Eden Lake. I suppose one of the biggest disappointments is the presence of Richard Madden, who, if nothing else, probably deserves a bigger profile than Game of Thrones alumni Kit Harrington has bafflingly achieved purely on the basis of his objectively superior acting abilities, again, for giving given variables <laughs> of <laughs> the word superior. Not that those are on display for this particular 90-minute stretch mind, and it's a shame to come away feeling that his lacklustre performance in Bastille Day actually makes me now reminisce fondly upon the Red Wedding. And as for Elba, uh, I remind you once again that there are people out there who consider this an interview for the Bond gig. To those people I say, there are professionals out there whose job it is to get you the help you so desperately need. <laughs> Full disclosure, I cannot abide Idris Elba, and I am consistently baffled by the praise heaped upon an actor who is, as far as I can tell, or sorry, who has, as far as I can tell, precisely two modes of acting, those being mean and moody loner, and honest gov, I'm just a regular blokey bloke who hangs out with other regular blokey blokes down the pub neither of which nuances he has ever convinced me of. That said, I'm perfectly capable of forgiving most actors I find disagreeable, most boys, not all, <laughs> their sins. If they deliver a performance that has conviction, and even if the material itself is hokey and flawed, I will give it a pass if it proves entertaining. Not a high bar, you'd think, but if I were faced with the prospect of having to watch this lazy, unimaginative junk again, well... Je préfère avoir des aguilles dans mes yeux. And on that <laughs> murdered French Scott, it's over to you. <laughs> Fucking Google Translate. <laughs> <sighs> Did either of you subject yourselves to this shit? Uh, we were going to, actually, we discussed earlier, but you warned us off it by... <laughs> Uh, various sweary tweets earlier in the <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes, I'd almost watched it a few times, but I think uh, I've dodged a bullet there. Right, I think you have as well. Might I make a recommendation? If you were thinking of watching The Take, uh, aka whatever, aka that, um, do yourself a favour. There is another suitably turgid movie which I saw at roughly the same time, which is the Kevin Costner vehicle um, Criminal. It is probably equally as bad as this, but it does feature Kevin Costner stumbling about London as, as, as a sociopathic death row convict who has had the memories of a CIA agent transferred into his own mind, stumbling into a kebab shop in London and chowing down on a kebab. There was just something really satisfying about seeing Kevin Costner in a beanie stuffing, stuffing a kebab in his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Well, 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 generic Londoners who, uh, if I if I recall correctly, anyway, generic Londoners who are always being scripted by people who have never been to London say things like, 
Don't, mate. It's not worth the kerfuffle. Watch that movie instead. So that brings us to Doctor Strange, which is the 16th film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe Studios era, which is a real triumph 16th. of quantity over reason. Yeah, that's that's not counting your uh, Spider-Mans and other kind of Sony mm. uh, offshoots yeah. and X-Men's. And that's like an actual number, not hyperbole. No, nope, this is the 16th Cranky. film. That uh, seems like a lot when you think about it. What are we taking like as the first Iron Man or... Iron Man was the first, I believe. Yeah. yeah oh my days! Yeah, a real triumph of quantity over reason. Uh, so I think even as perhaps the guy in this podcast who's most open to these kind of films, Marvel Studios is still hitting about a thirty-three percent hit rate with me. So I'm not exactly brimming with confidence with Doctor Strange, or as he's known to millions, who would be any good. Uh, but in general, I did prefer the quirkier outings to the more mainstream stuff, and the trailer certainly looks quirky, so let's give it a bash. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch's Stephen Strange is the world's best brain surgeon and won't let you forget about it. Don't know why he's so proud, it's not like it's rocket science or anything. Uh, after a period of the early running where he does almost too good a job of being an egotistical prick, given that he's nominally the hero of the film, the halfwit gets into a car wreck after consulting his phone, uh, his phone while speeding. Go Team Karma. Um, his life is saved, in part, thanks to the work of emergency room doctor and ex-girlfriend Christine Palmer, played by Rachel McAdams, but his precious, precious hands are ruined, crushed and rebuilt with steel pins, certainly ending his surgery career and possibly his holding things in general career. Uh, he spends the remainder of his cash exhausting Western medical knowledge before word reaches him of a possible cure in the Far East. Desperate, off he treks to Nepal in search of camertage, whatever that is. He's distressed to find that it's a compound for learning the mystical arts of magic, headed by Sorcerer Supreme, the Ancient One, Tilda Swinton, uh, <laughs> who may actually be the Ancient One, Sorcerer Supreme, in real life. Uh, so she's charged with defending the Earth from bad magic and that. And after a <laughs> after a suitable period of disbelief, uh, Strange accepts this new reality and proves to be a gifted, if still conceited, student, prone to questioning much and looking for powerful spells that are off limits to the novices. This troubles Aitchie, as I think I'll call her, and her right-hand man Carl Modo, Chibatila Legifor, as it reminds them of former student gone rogue Caselius, played by Mads Mikkelsen, who turned to the dark side or some such nonsense. There's a lot of that going about at the minute. <laughs> there is. Uh, he and a few of his goons are now working to mer merge our world with Dormammu and his Dark Dimension, who I think got to num number eight in the charts in 1973 Scott, with Scott, Baby I Want Your Love Thang. Scott, Scott, you had me at hello. <laughs> <laughs> so Dormammu is some sort of extra dimension extra-dimensional entity who seems to be trying to unite the world in the timelessness of death. Oh, yes, which, yes, I see. Which, for reasons not completely clear, Caselius thinks is close enough to immortality for him, because I suppose he's a damned idiot or something. I don't know. Uh, but at any rate, he's trying to bring about the end of all things, and Strange and Co. have to stop him by the dual mediums of Chopsoggy and reality-warping CG. It is, on any examination at all, total nonsense. <laughs> uh, but it is, actually, surprisingly, a very fun film aided greatly by the quality of cast they've attracted, probably the best yet for Marvel Studios. And I think Cumberbundle, Swindle, Elijah Four, Mickelson, and most of the supporting cast play blinders. Only Rachel McAdams is wasted due to a wildly underwritten role, but as a whole, the cast provide a substantial elevation of some slight source material. In particular, Mickelson's uh, character gets the, the usual 
the usual kind of Marvel criticism that is they can't actually write a good bad guy, and to an extent that's the case here, but Mickelson gives a kind of deadpan uh, delivery of most of his stuff, which kind of, I think, pulls it off just, but yeah, it's not not the strongest. And now we've all sat around this podcast bemoaning comic book adaptations that devolve into one group of CG assets punching another group of CG <laughs> assets until the credit rolls and sections of Doctor Strange head in that direction. But it has at least the sense to use its CG budget to produce something visually distinctive and more or less original if we pretend Inception didn't exist. Uh, for mm. once, this makes the action scenes interesting and indeed the whole film has an appealing and individual style. It's also pretty funny too, channeling the goofiness of the Ant-Man film and not taking itself particularly seriously, which, given the subject matter, is definitely a good thing. In fact, it's only when it does make an attempt to be taken seriously it falls flat. Strange's response to his injuries is a little bit gnarly for sure, but uh, worse is when Elijah Four's Mordo starts moralising on the use of magic, partly as a setup to him becoming a villain, uh, a villain for future instalments. Uh, it's galling because it makes no sense. The bill comes due, he keeps saying, but it manifestly doesn't for anyone at any point in the film. Um, he becomes disgusted that Ainchie's uh, siphoning off energy from the dark dimension to grant her the sort of longevity that leads to becoming called the Ancient One, but there appears to be no downside to this for anyone. So I'm left wondering quite what his problem was. Perhaps that's a story for a different day, but if so, maybe don't put it in this film? Uh, uh, at any rate, I'm just glad they finally managed to work in Abbott and Costello, who's on first routine variant into a multi-million dollar effects extravaganza. Um, <laughs> <laughs> easily 11 million times better than the turgid thief of time that was sort of uh, Civil War, and perhaps the most enjoyable tentpole of the year, not sadly that this is saying a great deal. And so, yeah, recommended. Uh, nice. I haven't seen Doc Strange yet. I would very much like to have uh, seen it because it's probably the first of the Marvel movies in a long time, if ever, that has actually piqued my interest to some degree. But I don't know. I mean, did, did you see it, Drew? No, um, not the chance yet. Though, actually, looking at the trailer, I'm thinking this looks quite interesting. No, Tilda Swinton. Maybe not then, because the trailer <laughs> definitely has Tilda Swinton in it. I, I just wish they'd retrofitted it, and uh, we weren't. We weren't dealing with the character, the character who's a <laughs> who's a brilliant brain surgeon. Given that for about the past six to nine months, Ben Carson has done a fantastic job of shattering the illusion that in order to be a brain surgeon, you need <laughs> to be a brain surgeon. <laughs> so, if only they'd made Doctor Strange like a really good plumber or something like that. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I would have been first. I would have been first in the queue, but like most things in life at the minute, Trump and his fucking campaign have taken the edge of that right off. <laughs> oh dear! Yeah. It it's not breaking away from the usual origin story mold that Marvel has. They've got their formula and they're sticking to it. But hey, at least this way, it it's dressed up. Yeah, it's dressed up uh, to the extent that it makes it feel a bit fresher than usual. Although if you peel it away. The bones of it are the same, but mm. yeah, it, 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 it's a formula that more or less works. So why break it? Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting to see the commitment with which they're approaching this stuff. When, as as you point out, Scott, Doctor Strange, who? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, the Doctor Strange is it, it's not. Is it still a current strip? I mean, I know it was sixties, seventies. It was very. Um, if you were if you were reading comic books back back then, it was probably you would have been very familiar with it. But I don't think up until the point that I had that I started hearing talk of this and Cumberbatch having been cast as Doctor Strange that I was really all that aware of it myself in pop culture terms. I think I wasn't really aware of it from a um, 
documentary that was on the BBC years ago with Jonathan Ross and Neil Gaiman about Steve Ditko. Mm. And they mentioned Doctor Strange quite a lot then. And that's more or less the only time it's ever entered my um, my knowledge. Was there a car- Was there a cartoon? Probably. Doctor Strange at some point. Because I want to say I've got the vaguest recollection of like a 60s, 70s cartoon rerun at some point knocking about my... It's very possible. I definitely remember Fantastic Four cartoons from that yeah. sort of era, so there may well be a yeah. Doctor Strange one. I mean, no, that's by the by, isn't it? But um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm almost impressed by with, you know, with the conviction or by the conviction rather with which they are throwing uh, money at some of these lower tier characters now. Because the first time that popped up, not being something that was on my radar, I looked at it and my first thought was, oh Jesus Christ, they're scraping the bottom of the barrel already. Um, <laughs> if by already you can accept <laughs> the term of sixteenth movie. Um, but yeah, that's um, you know. So I was quite pleasantly surprised when the the first sort of trailer appeared to think, oh, that actually looks quite interesting. I might be able to get on board with this. It seems seems more like my cup of tea than a lot of the other Marvel stuff. Yeah, I think what kind of puts me off with it, I would like to see it, but is if they start trying to tie it into all the other stuff too. Mm. Um, if they just like here's another thing, it's maybe the same universe, but never really interacts with anything else. Okay, I'll accept that, but mm. they just. They seem to just want to keep tying things together. It's one of the problems with oh, Civil I'm War. Oh, I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will at some point. Only, they mentioned the Avengers in it, but there's no other kind yeah. of obvious tie over in it until we get to the. I want to say it's been confirmed stuff. that he, that Doctor Strange, will be part of Infinity War. It would seem to be the case. It was yes, like, that's, that's up his street because that's exactly what um, all these Avengers type films need. Yeah, they need a few more characters. characters. Yeah, yeah, yes. I think. They need a few more characters, yeah. Yeah, and because, the complication um, of warping Euclidean geometry on top of all of that. The um the hundred and twenty odd that were in Civil War simply wasn't enough. No, no, <laughs> they clearly need a bit of backup. So that knocks us back to you with the shallows, Greg. Oh my days! I'm so glad I saw the light between oceans on. Was it Sunday? We went to see it at the cinema because up until that point, I really feel like I've been punching myself in the throat all month. <laughs> um. Yeah, every now and again, word of mouth begins to spread outward from the festival circuit or some other place about a thriller. These low-budget production constraints and high concept enable the perfect storm of ingenuity, creativity and minimalism, demonstrating that less is almost always more and reminding us all of why it is we love cinema to begin with. That is a sharp movie I had been promised as I sat down to watch it in my hotel room the other night, and yet I find myself instead talking to you now about The Shallows, a movie that features a vindictive, flying, flaming shark harassing an attractive young blonde woman in a bikini for just under 90 minutes. The setup for The Shallows is admittedly very appealing, not not the bit I've just read to you. And for the first half hour or so, it seems that we may well be in for that promised thrill ride. Uh, Blake Lively is Nancy, a thrill-seeking young lady who aims to fulfil a spiritual endeavour by riding the waves of a remote bay in Mexico she first experienced from within the womb of her surfer mother, now sadly deceased. Unperturbed by the fact her friend and travelling partner has forsaken her on this trip for some chap she met at the hotel, Nancy embarks upon the waves, making brief acquaintance with two fellow surfers also enjoying the breaks of the bay. Unbeknown to Nancy, there is one more acquaintance to be made, namely that of a rather large great white shark who is making meal of a decaying humpback whale further out in the bay, and who, having knocked her off her board and taken a good bite at her thigh, soon has her heroine marooned on a rock outcrop barely large enough to support her and situated agonisingly close to shore. 
The most infuriating thing about the shallows, if I am to allow it to infuriate me, is that it takes this setup and for some time actually bothers to build on it in a mostly believable way. Sure, there are narrative conveniences that are enabled in a slightly patronising and or cringeworthy way. See the three pictures Nancy flicks through on her phone en route to the bay that neatly set up her character's backstory. But none are so abrasive as to dissuade or distract from the audience's engagement. Lively herself has come in for no small amount of stick in the wake of this movie, but as far as I can tell, initially at least, she makes for an engaging lead and handles the task of being both bold and yet absolutely vulnerable in a fairly assured fashion. Sidestepping the pitfalls of a character who could quite easily have become an unsympathetic extreme sports gap year slash trust fund caricature. Both the anguish of Nancy's immediate predicament and the terror upon realisation of the inescapably terminal nature of it are palpable, and for the first time in a long while I found myself actually bordering on being genuinely emotionally invested in a character in peril, overcoming the odds. In fact, I was almost on the edge of my bed, as Nancy's two surfer friends returned the following morning, baffled as to why she would be seemingly stranded and yet frantically waving them away. And then the shark started flying. Not in a way that defies nature necessarily, certainly since all of that footage of female Great Whites breaching started being captured about a decade ago, revitalising Discovery Shark Week, and certainly not in a mega shark versus whatever the fuck taking down cruising airliners kind of way either. <laughs> uh, rather it is the frequency and the intent with which our antagonist starts taking to the air that baffles. Uh, we can forgive old Whitey her first acrobatic chowdown, as it is wisely viewed from afar and is both brief and unspectacular enough to remain in service of ramping up tension. From this point on, though, it would seem director Wami Colette Serra is intent on scuttling all of the goodwill built up in an effectively low-key opening act in favour of delivering a spiritual successor to Deep Blue Sea. Lively purportedly became interested in the project after expressing a desire to try something akin to her husband Ryan Reynolds' work in Buried. Quite how it passed her by that at no point did that movie, set entirely within the fight confines of a coffin, feature anything so egregious as, I'll say it again, a vindictive, flying, flaming shark is beyond me. But perhaps it looked better on paper. A piece of paper, shaped like a cheque, made out for several hundred thousand dollars, say. <laughs> the abrupt handbrake turn of the movie's second act is never corrected and things only get worse as we are subjected to magical glowing jellyfish a seagull companion called Stephen do you get it? do you bloody get it? and even more angry flying bad CG sharkage that makes those earlier examples look like deleted scenes from Citizen Kane by the time Sharky McSharkface meets her ridiculously contrived Looney Tunes comeuppance, I had convinced myself that I had somehow slipped into a parallel universe, and that that version of myself was watching the same movie, only in an alternate timeline where millions of years earlier, a butterfly farted instead of flapping its wings. Now, someone somewhere gave this movie the green light. Someone presumably neck deep in a mountain of cocaine. And now, here I am, with no cocaine. No cocaine. <laughs> None. And I am missing this week's episode of Westworld in order to tell you about the shallows. Remember me! <laughs> so a solid recommendation there for the shallows from Craig there. Oh, well, uh, listen, Paul uh, Ross said four out of five. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> so it's the sort of thing you would say. Mm. Indeed. So that brings us to Drew with Miss Peregrine and the something, something else that I've not made a note of. <laughs> Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. That's the one. This obviously having made such an impact on me, I entirely forgot I'd watched this for the last time we did an intermission podcast, so <laughs> uh, it's actually better than that would make it seem, though. 
Are you sure? Not one hundred percent. No, I was going to say your tone might suggest otherwise, but yeah. you you have our attention. Uh, it feels like quite a while since a Tim Burton film felt particularly Tim Burtony. Mm. Big Eyes, for example, was good, but lacked pretty much anything of the director's distinctive style. But for good and for bad, much of his style is present in Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, an adaptation by Jane Goldman of the best-selling young adult novel of the same name by Ransom Riggs. Ransom Riggs, remarkably, not being a pseudonym like Lemony Snicket, but a person's actual name. <laughs> Someone whose parents didn't like him, I think. <laughs> Their name is Ransom. And <laughs> they really just name their children after Mel Gibson films. Give me back my son! We love you so much, son, that we're going to have you forever associated with kidnapping. Hey. <laughs> yes. After his grandfather, Terrence Stamp, is killed by mysterious creatures, Jake, Asa Butterfield, begins to discover that there is a hidden world that his grandfather was a part of. A world of peculiar children with strange and unusual gifts. Mm. If gifts you want to call them. Like being lighter than air. The ability to control fire, or the ever useful and desired abilities to animate corpses, <laughs> animate corpses <laughs> or breathe bees. That's unusually specific. Can they can they enable both at the same time? That would be awesome. <laughs> I would just point out though that those aren't um, ridiculous examples. I've come up with one of the abilities is breathing bees. Well, those are very much median examples. Aren't they? <laughs> These peculiar children live in bubbles of time where they must live through the same day over and over again, making the whole thing seem a bit like a school for the crappy X-Men on Groundhog Day. As he tries to learn more about this world, Jake learns that he, too, is peculiar, his own ability being rather more useful than many of the others in the... <laughs> I just so I was the time I'm just so stuck now by the absurdity of a character whose peculiarity is breathing bees. Michael Caine wouldn't like him. As he's as he's, as he's choking me in the corner. Oh, son, did it go down the wrong hole? Oh, no, no, it's just bees again, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, Jake's own ability is that he is the only person who can see the invisible hollows. Mutated peculiars who now hunt for the children in order to con- or, uh, <laughs> I've got bees in my mouth. Who now hunt for the children in order to consume their eyes. <laughs> can, I, can I persuade you to try these truffles instead? <laughs> I assure you they will taste better. Why do they want the children's eyes, man? What do I? Why the eyes? Because apparently by eating the eyes, they'll get some sort of superpowers. Basically, it. it's um, it's kind of horrific for a, um, as basically a children's oh. story. But yes, they, they eat the eyes because that's, that's the best bits. Mm, delicious vittles. Once, <laughs> <laughs> when the children's protector, Miss Peregrine, Eva Green, once again sporting that excruciating almost English but mostly inhuman accent through which the French is continually fighting to escape is captured by Samuel L. Jackson's sinister Mr. Barron it falls to Jake to protect the other children and then to rescue Miss Peregrine from Barron's sinister and evil laboratory which is naturally in Blackpool it's just so it's this the idea of the finale of a Hollywood film being set in Blackpool seems so particularly strange to me it certainly well, does. The reason for that actually is that, or one of the reasons, I don't know if it's in the book or not, but Tim 
Tim it's cheap, <laughs> probably. <laughs> Tim Burton really <laughs> likes the idea of the setting of like a a tourist resort or a fairground town that's all run down and dead. Which I suspect people mm. who currently live in Blackpool would object to the, uh, the description of, but seems about right yes. to me. <laughs> the the one remit that that place is convincingly able yes. to fulfil. I know somebody um, who likes Blackpool and went quite a lot. Uh, somebody used to work beside, and still, mm. when I tell them what's the what's the one thing you think about when you think about Blackpool is chip papers <laughs> if he likes the place my, my father-in-law's enthralled by Blackpool and I can't just help but thinking John, you just haven't been to Blackpool in a long time <laughs> do they go on the big one? Oh, is that the Pepsi Max roller coaster? or whatever it's called these days, I don't know no, no roller coasters were harmed in the making of this film That's... did they go on a log flume? <laughs> did they shoot heroin in Blackpool? I hear that's what people do. Is that why they want the eyes? For the heroin? The eyes for the heroin? What? Yes. <laughs> Dude, I watch Bastille Day in the shallows. Narrative logic is not big on my agenda She's right got now. heroin Davis eyes. <laughs> Tangentially. <laughs> Back, back to the still, film still, still vaguely related like yeah. se- several, yeah, I'm, I'm not in it se- this one several layers several layers existentially <laughs> removed from the original topic <laughs> I get what we're I get, I get the I get the idea of what it is we're talking about but I'm not into that's because I've forgotten it's really just a it's really just a feeling but that okay back to the film that's more or less it for your plot weird children with strange abilities getting hunted by monsters that want to eat their eyes um, controlled by Samuel L. Jackson there's a big showdown in Blackpool where the kids all come together to rescue Miss Peregrine. You had me a heroin <laughs> eyes. <laughs> Very Moorish. While calling unoriginal sounds harsh, much of it feels... St- <laughs> <laughs> I think it's made a reasonable case for originality at this point. <laughs> I'm just thinking, hence that famous saying, ah, I can't see the heroin for the heroin. <laughs> That's because you're... <laughs> It's because your eyes are filled with heroin, Timmy. Oh, that'll be it. Ow, a tree. Okay, our, our, um, trip off into the... I like this movie. Oh, I like this movie that we made. Oh, bloody hell. Okay. Well, Kong on original sounds harsh and now barking mad from uh, a trip there. Much of it um, feels too familiar. A combination of... <laughs> <laughs> a combination of heroin and eyes. <laughs> I'll edit this one, Scott. It's all right. <laughs> I'll leave this. <laughs> She's got heroin eyes. <laughs> Feeling too familiar as it does with a combination of Burton's reworking and reusing of his previous tricks. <laughs> Remembering how much his other eyes uh, films have filmed <laughs> big, big eyes. <laughs> that took a lot of heroin, man. Extra heroin storage. <laughs> we've, just, we've just cracked the Burton code. Man. Heroin. It was always heroin. I'm telling you, man. And eyes. There's a secret message that runs through all of his films, and Obama wasn't born in America, man. 
Heroin doesn't cook hot enough to melt eyes, man. <laughs> <laughs> a combination of Burton reworking and reusing his previous tricks and the story sharing some elements with other works. Such as train spotting. Full of heroin filled eyes, all of his other works are. Um, <laughs> it is also a little long as it does begin to drag a little towards the end. It's more Burton in style than in substance, but for fans of the director, it's worth checking out for that alone. <laughs> But it's still a decently entertaining, <laughs> if slight diversion, quite apart from that. <laughs> Moving on from Tim Burton's heroin-filled ocular cavities. Um, a quick note from me as well, I did catch up with a couple of documentaries that I'd been meaning to watch this month as well, if you would like me to talk about those. Uh, first of all, I suppose I have least to say about Supersonic, which is a documentary of the early years of Oasis, the, uh, the British rock group who achieved... Titanic status, I suppose, in most senses of most senses of that word, in one way or another. If if like the three of us, you were going through your formative teenage years, especially as Oasis were playing out the soundtrack to your life, then this documentary is probably going to be absolutely of interest to you, even if you weren't a huge fan of their music, which I don't think many people weren't. I know I took a standpoint of I really loved the music, but I refused to buy any of the albums because I hated the thought of those two idiots getting any of my money. But I think most people would probably. Uh, agree that their musical output in those early years was was nothing sh short of astonishing. And this is a very um, frank and personal documentary, although it is um, narrated entirely in voiceover, culled from interviews, I think old and new material actually, from all of the main players. Um, and it's a very, very compelling story, even if it doesn't fill in all of the uh, all of the points that you'd probably like. There, for example, <laughs> if you were if you were living in Britain at the time, you were probably sitting watching this documentary wondering why the word blur doesn't even come up at any point. But um, <laughs> I suppose, in the sense that this this documentary is largely focused on um, how narcissistic the Gallagher brothers are, then perhaps it's to be expected that the documentary probably wouldn't want to look too far outside of the Gallagher brothers, uh, if we're honest. And it certainly paints a very compelling tale. A lot of really fantastic, especially early studio footage, which I had never seen before, and which I doubt many people will have seen before. And just a very, very compelling document of um, a place and time, which, as Noel Gallagher points out towards the end of the film, is probably never really likely to happen again, what with the proliferation of digital music um, and and the less than likelihood of something like the Nebworth event ever actually being feasible to stage with so many people present in one place again. Um, it could probably do with being about half an hour shorter, uh, I would wager, but um, I'm not the biggest Oasis fan in the world, and I did thoroughly enjoy it. I don't think neither of you guys watched Supersonic, did you? No. No, no. in which case, I know, Scott, that you've uh, you've got notes on the next one. Uh, the other documentary I caught up with this month was, lo and behold, Reveries of the Connected World from Werner Herzog, a director who, when he's in the mood to make a documentary, seems, seems to pick topics that genuinely interest him, I think it's fair to say, um, in which he can allow to trickle through the mesh of his particular existential filters at a pace which suits him best. It's often, if not always, impossible to quantify precisely what brand of magic Werner Herzog weaves, but the results are almost always eminently watchable, even on occasions where final real albino alligators take his stream of consciousness on a definite <laughs> slice off of the fairway. Um, and, and so it is with, lo and behold, a documentary which seems to suggest that Herzog has only just formulated some thoughts on this thing called the internet. Uh, nebulous and scattered thoughts, to be sure, 
but tackled with a great big intellectual blunderbuss that he loads with such buckshot as Lawrence Krauss, Kevin Mitnick, Sebastian Thrun, Elon Musk and Lucian Volkovich. Quite what Herzog actually, you know, sorry, quite what Herzog's actual conclusions are regarding our connected world. I'm not entirely sure, but I could listen to him reading a phone book if it were interspersed with typical <laughs> existential diversions into the abyss. And I suspect my colleagues here would probably tell you the same. So if you have any interest in thinking about technology beyond the obvious, you should probably watch this, in my opinion. I don't know if you agree, Scott, but... Uh, no, um, I've, I've seen a few of Herzog's documentaries by this point, and I, I don't think I've been any of the wiser going into any, uh, going out of any of them as I was going in. And that's certainly the case with Lo and Behold, but this does miss the one component that is in most of his other works, entertainment. This just swings between boring, superficial, and flat-out ill-informed. And it's largely mm. a waste of everyone involves time and effort. Uh, in particular, when you credulously put up those people who you know, claim electromagnetic sensitivity has forced them into oh, the wilds. It's like, yeah. like uh, I'm, uh, look, I'm sure those people, they are suffering, uh, but it's all mental. There is there has been many you know, double-blind studies that have proven that there is no such condition no physiologically. That, yeah. Yeah, and it's just presented, you know, absolutely credulously in this, which really undercuts his, uh, th- my opinion of the rest of the film. And mm. um, yeah, the the rest of it is doesn't really ask any questions that are of much interest. I don't think, and yeah, it just seemed like a, a waste of two hours of my life, to be honest with you. I wouldn't recommend this at all. Denied. I'd, do you know what? I'd completely forgotten those electromagnetic interference weirdos, and yeah, it does actually seem incredibly irresponsible to lend that any sort of credence whatsoever. <coughs> Excuse me, these people living out in sort of radio, radio-free dark zones. Out where one of the well, it's one of the big antenna arrays, isn't it? Yeah. Um, situated, um, and yeah, it kind of detracts a little bit for for anyone who's a rationalist and who believes in things like facts. Yeah, it kind of takes you out of the documentary a little bit to have ten fifteen minutes dedicated to these people sitting around on a veranda, um, bringing themselves to tears, talking about how this this ailment, which is frankly, yes, you're right, entirely in their heads, has yeah. ruined their lives. Um, mm. But yeah, no, I, I I thought other than that it was very interesting, if only in that sort of meandering Herzog way. Like like you say, there's not a great deal of substance to any of the interviews. It is, it is kind of just interview after interview in a very disconnected way almost. Um, and it's not it's not that you could plot a roadmap roadmap of the the topics that he's trying to cover, and that they would be perhaps that's what he's trying to achieve. The nature of the web. In, inter- in interview form, all these very disconnected nodes of uh, conversation topics, but I'm perhaps lending it a little bit too much credence there. Um, I mean, I- most of his questions are all along the lines of asking Elon Musk if the internet could smell, what would its favourite candle be? Yeah. <laughs> 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 and then this air of this air of suspicion on this part that perhaps the internet might be able to might might at some point be on the point of making a better documentary than him, which is <laughs> which she takes minor umbrage at and asserts quite firmly, no, it won't. Um, <laughs> words to that effect. Yeah, no, I, I, I clearly I found it a bit more enjoyable than yourself, Scott. But yeah, it is important to note the caveat that it's not a documentary of any substance. And if you if you want a sort of conclusion or any kind of definite statement about what our increasingly connected world means to us and the future of the species, which I feel is kind of what was promised going in, then yeah, you're not going to get that. If what I wish is it's cut into what 10, 12 10, little 10 chapters, chapters or something. Or something yeah. Uh, there's about 
three or four that I think could feasibly have become a documentary subject by itself, mm-hmm. which would have been more interesting rather than just superficially uh, scraping over the top of something. And even when you actually ask interesting questions, most of the time you're actually just spent watching it, <laughs> sitting watching them think about the question yeah. rather than actually hearing the answer. There's a bit about <laughs> the, the, the guys who are at the sort of the the forest retreat because they have become addicted to living in the virtual world and whatnot. And that that looks like it's building up to be an absolutely fascinating um segment uh, and i thought actually might have made up the bulk of the rest of the documentary at that point but it's quickly it's quickly knocked on the head when herzog basically says oh i wanted to what is it he says he says of the of the young uh, lady he's speaking to about i i think she's addicted to world of warcraft or something and he says something about her, i really wanted to ask her more about like the antagonistic poison dwarf or something like that that she was inhabiting yeah. but i had to I had, I had to stop because I could see she was becoming restless or something like that. And then it's just, okay, <laughs> on to the next topic then. Here are some people hiding in the trees because they think radio waves are making their teeth rattle or something. Um, <laughs> it's Yeah, it's it's suitably bizarre for a Herzog documentary. But yeah, in, in the way that um, Grizzly Man was very focused on one topic, and I would argue it's probably a much more rewarding documentary and more compelling than this yet, might have... Might have benefited more. You're right from uh, focusing a little bit more tightly on its its topics, but I still liked it. There's no accounting for taste. There's not. So I guess that brings me to Jack Reacher. Never go back, and it's almost mandatory, I believe, to start a review of this film, talking about how it's a sequel that nobody wanted. But well, <laughs> I kind of wanted this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not that the first film was a masterpiece, but it was an unrelentingly solid mid-budget criminal investigation <laughs> with, procedural. With Werner Herzog <laughs> as the bad guy. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> and it's the sort of film that's seemingly gone out of fashion of late, uh, what with the retreat from either upmarket to super-budgeted tentpole releases or no-budget indie films, mm. and the kind of middle ground is largely left to rot. Yes, if it, if yeah. it were a supermarket, it would be Tesco. <laughs> I remember thinking at the time that Jack Reacher felt very like a 90s film and i think also in marketing even um mm. like you're saying scott it's, it felt like a 90s film too it's, don't get many films like that nowadays and i remember thinking i could very much stand to see one of these films every couple of years yeah, and mm-hmm. yeah. it's been a bit more than a couple of years it's been what four hasn't it god um, already i think yeah, it has hasn't it it seems about right yeah uh we rejoin reacher of course played by tom o'cruz uh drifting his way across the united states like some sort of ex-military police littlest hobo occasionally <laughs> calling in to chat with the new occupant of his old command major susan turner before long reacher has decided to head back to washington we Washington to meet her, but by the time he's hitchhiked his way back across country, she's been arrested for involvement in the deaths of two soldiers in Afghanistan. After a meeting with her lawyer, Reacher believes that she is being framed for this crime and resolves to break her out of prison, as you do. Uh, Things quickly escalate, with Reacher being framed for the murder of that there lawyer and tailed by operatives of a private military company who, Turner confirms, were under suspicion of being up to no good and were uh, were being investigated by them, their murdered soldiers. So, in order to clear the names, Reacher and Turner must work out exactly what major badness the PMC are up to all the while dodging the PMC goons and the rather more competent head assassin that are on their trail. Uh, to make things a little more complicated, Reacher had been informed that a paternity suit had been filed against him while he was on walkabout, and his visit to see Samantha, played by Danica Yarosh, uh, before this got quite so dangerous, has inadvertently painted a target on his possible daughter, so he must r- also wrangle an occasionally petulant teen through this gauntlet while also trying to relate to her. 
it's all, in the politest possible sense, quite unremarkable, which is not the same as unenjoyable, but in the unlikely event you were expecting anything other than a competent genre outing, you will be disappointed. Also, perhaps we need to have a word about managing your expectations, as even its most enthusiastic trailer isn't selling this as anything other than a competent genre outing. Now, Cruz can do this sort of role in his sleep, and in this instance, he largely has, <laughs> albeit with enough flashes of charisma in the relationship with uh, Smulders and Yurosh to keep things watchable throughout, and the action sequences are crisply handled. Similarly, the narrative showers itself in competence, although it's not do- really doing anything at all original. It is, as you may have gathered by this point, a difficult film to be overly enthusiastic about. However, it's a still a film that I enjoyed well enough while watching. I imagine, much like its predecessor, I will never think about it again once we're done with this podcast, and of course there are much better films out there, but this is a perfectly acceptable procedural to parade in front of your eyeballs, should you be in the mood for it. And as such, gets a mild recommendation from me. Geez, so that takes us to round out tonight with The Infiltrator. Uh, Drew, do you want to take a crack at that one? So, back to the 80s then, with uh, your Walter White man, Mr Brian Cranston, who's made quite a name for himself in the big screen since ending Breaking Bad maybe Godzilla aside here he plays Robert Mazur, a real life US customs special agent who decided that what the thing to do was when they failed to be able to land any of the big drug dealers particularly in Pablo Escobar's Medellin cartel was to follow the money rather than the drugs because going after the drugs is one thing but going after um, them it really hurts is to go after their wallets following the money he and his partner Mio Abreu John Lucuzamo sets himself up as Bob Musella a money launderer with ties to the mafia starting with smaller fry he risks his life and his relationship with his family by winning the trust of the drug organizations all the way up to Benjamin Bratt's Roberto Alcaino money man for Pablo Escobar and the astonishingly corrupt Bank of Credit and Commerce International Based on Masur's autobiography, given that it portrays, or purports to at least, actual events, it seems somewhat unfair to say that we've seen this sort of thing before too many times. But, well, we have. Which is a real shame, because it's a very well-made film, with great turns, particularly from Cranston like Guizamo, and a variety of solid supporting acts. But there's no real hook for the film to hang on. It feels like something made for Netflix or Amazon Instant Video. Mm. No, that's necessarily a bad thing nowadays, and the production quality and that sort of thing so much higher. It's but what I was, what I actually was thinking of saying is that if maybe if Netflix Narcos wasn't hoovering up all of the Escobar mindshare, this would have got a fairer crack of the whip. Mm-hmm. Yes, because maybe. I mean, it's a similar sort of thing. Um, but Narcos works really well as a mini series. It's, it's a really good. I mean, to watch know, Wanted to see that. Yeah, and this is a, a, a sort of similar thing, but by its very nature, being a film much more heavily abridged and compressed. Uh-huh. So it does have to fall back on the kind of usual tropes you might expect of something along the lines of this kind of uh, undercover investigation kind of thing. And it does have basically most of the same tropes or plot points that you've seen before a number of times. And that's really the only criticism I've got of it. The rest of it's really well handled and it's, uh, I think, quite competently put together. Yeah, that's um, it's well made. Uh, and... For me, yes, the the story is tired doesn't seem like the right word. I mean, it's not like there's that many of this film, but there have been a few, and then you obviously have comparisons to the likes of Donnie Brasco or something, which you just can't compete with. Hmm. But 
Brian Cranston is particularly watchable. I thought he was really, really fantastic in Trumbo. Yes. Um, but Trumbo is, it's a fairly level role. He plays, it's, he's interesting. He, he's got great comic timing in that film, so he does that very well. But his character doesn't change much throughout the film. Whereas here, you do get to see some of the things that made him such a watchable guy in Breaking Bad because he has there's some moments of genuine tension here particularly when John Leguizamo is almost going to have his cover blown and the moment in the restaurant where suddenly Brian Cranston has to become a different person in front of his wife yeah um so he's actually genuinely getting to stretch himself there and you see he's absolutely got the ability to do it so for that alone for Brian Cranston alone it's worth watching and I certainly wouldn't like to dissuade anyone from from seeing this film it's just that it's not it's not special i think would be would be the best way to put it but yes it's in no means bad it's well made it's well acted it's just story-wise it's not the strongest and the the ending disappointed me a little and yes as you're saying scott because i've heard so many good things about narcos i must see that myself that it's kind of got the whole escobar thing covered at the moment yeah yeah but, and uh, i certainly would never want to uh dissuade anyone from, anyone from watching it particularly if you've got an interest in what I suppose you could call undercover procedurals uh, this is a, a very solid addition to your watch list so fair enough I guess that brings us to an end of this uh, wonderful explanation of largely garbage films <laughs> <laughs> uh, just before we go a couple of shouts out to the folks on Twitter and Facebook who have been conversing with us lately uh, of course the Magic Lantern at under, uh, Lantern underscore cast of steadfast supporters as are we of them so we're certainly going to give those folks a listen if you haven't already uh, another comment from Matt Toller M. Toller on the Twitters just uh, in the wake of our black and white episode uh, he mentions of the good German here's a sad state of affairs I've seen the good German and I couldn't tell you a single thing that happens in it uh, Movie Geekcast that's Movie Geekcast on the Twitters uh, we were commiserating with them about the uh, news of the upcoming Starship Troopers reboot oh dear uh, and uh, Media Nerds, that's at nerds underscore podcast. Uh, we're, of course, in the relate of our Prestige and Delusionist episode, we're just recommending that to them who they say they haven't seen either of these films. And, of course, we, as mentioned last podcast, we would recommend you see them both. And Zach Burns, hello, Zach. Uh, Zach Burns 18 on the Twitters, really enjoyed the 70s horror podcast. I actually hadn't seen any of them. Not sure if that's my lack of age or hate of horror. Um, <laughs> both are both that's are equally good. Yeah, <laughs> probably about both did. And uh, just a few shout out on the old uh, Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash Film. Comment on the uh, black and white uh, post, which uh, I, I will relate to you, although I don't really know the context of it. Uh, Gabriel C.L. Maldonado who maintains that The Giver should have been shot in black and white with it steadily filling in shades and hues as Jonah learned more about the past, which is a... I think we touched upon some some of those concepts briefly where, you know, some of the, the black and white sort of turns to colour over time. I think there's mm. a few other films that use it. Is it Pleasantville, perhaps, that use something something similar like that kind of a topic? But I've, I have uh, never seen The Giver, so I can't really give you much more of a... a an intelligent comment on that and a few comments on the prestige and the illusionish podcast Christopher Carl Staples said that Chris Nolan is the master of misdirection and the prestige is superior uh, to the illusionist of course and yes that's very much the conclusion we came to as well and mm-hmm. uh, Carl Zitrogoff mm-hmm. loves the prestige great cast and indeed it is isn't it uh, 
So you mentioned one of uh, Nolan's best films. Indeed. So yes, if you would like to talk to us about this or any other opinion about films that you may have, um, certainly those are two good places to do it. Either facebook.com uh, slash fudsonfilm or twitter at fudsonfilm or indeed email podcast at fudsonfilm.com. And that, I think, is your lot for today. So I will bid you adieu and I'm sure... I will similar feelings shall be bestowed upon you by Drew. Fare thee well. And Craig. Don't let the flaming flying sharks get you. Don't let the flaming flying shark bugs bite. <laughs> As you go to sleep tonight. Farewell. Bye.